Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Rachel Grunspan. Rachel has worn many hats in her 20 plus years at CIA, including cyber threat analyst, game and simulation designer, and executive manager. She is currently Dean for CIA's Digital University, which is charged with raising officers' digital acumen and developing experts in digital tradecraft. Rachel leads with the philosophy that increasing the creative capacity of individuals and organizations is key to closing intelligence and national security gaps. Rachel has led many first-of-their-kind endeavors. She was an early leader and influential voice in developing strategies for AI use within the agency and has designed and overseen games to probe what-ifs related to the evolving digital landscape, climate change, and counterterrorism. She is the recipient of the ODNI Galileo Award, which recognizes creative solutions to future intelligence challenges, and has spoken to a variety of audiences over the years, including South by Southwest Interactive, on the value of gaming and simulations bring to national security. Rachel is also a published author, having co-written the computer book From the Abacus to Artificial Intelligence, 250 Milestones in the History of Computer Science. Rachel, I have been looking forward to today. We are so excited to have you. To kick us off, can you explain to our listeners what you do as a gaming and simulations expert and why it's important? I've heard you describe this line of work as providing what ifs for decision makers. What do you mean by that? And can you share a story about what an intelligence game looks like? Sure. Okay. So let me unpack this a little bit. At the most basic level, what I do is design story environments that surface the art of the possible and they show how a potential future could unfold. So what that means in practice really is that we're putting in place the conditions necessary for players to produce new and unexpected insight and value for the intelligence mission. Um, and that's uh, that's kind of where the what ifs come into play, right? So we ask questions like, what if these conditions were true? What might we learn from how a game story played out? What decisions or maybe what investments could we make now kind of given the the, the taste that we just got to kind of some of the non-obvious paths to a game outcome? And, um, and, and this stuff is really important. We kind of think of this with um, kind of two lenses in mind. When you put on kind of the, the big picture, the big lens, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of goes without saying we're, we're dealing with, uh, you know, a dynamic set of threats, right? So it turns out that intelligence games and, and simulations um, can often be uh, a, an effective proxy, essentially, for exploring, you know, how complex scenarios evolve um, and factors that, that shape change. So that's, uh, that's kind of the big picture. Um, when you think about it through the lens of the individual officer, though, 
Mm-hmm. What what this stuff does for them, um, a game is really, uh, it's an immersive story environment. And it's important for a few reasons. It can be used for personal growth. It gives them an opportunity to explore their leadership style for outlearning our opponents. And, um, and what's most important to me is really um, helping each person realize um, their creative capacity in service, you know, of mission. That's that's kind of a bunch of abstract stuff, right? So let me try and paint more of a, a picture of what this what this looks like. Yes, and 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 if you could clarify a little bit of who the players are. Right, right. Okay. So when we're talking about intelligence games in this context, we're talking about um, people playing. We're not we're not talking about like an electronic simulation running in the background, right? So they usually take place over a few days. The players um, who are our subject matter experts um, are drawn from, and they're kind of based upon the intelligence question that we're exploring, right? So it's public sector, it's private sector, um, it's academia, and we take these folks and we divide them into different teams, again, depending upon, you know, upon the intelligence question. So in each game, we have a blue team and we have a red team, right? And the blue usually represents... Uh, different government organizations. Red tends to represent uh, the adversary, which we, you know, we may or may not make explicit to the players, right? So one of the things that we do before an actual game uh, is we really, really try to get uh, the play. This is one of my favorite parts. We really try to get the players uh, emotionally invested in the game they're about to step into, right? And so we do this by having them actually design the characters for the roles they've been assigned, right? So if we bring in a SME, um, instead of that SME um, playing, you know, just the ambassador from country X, they are now ambassador, you know, Mary, and this is, she's from this hometown and she has a backstory that connects with all the other characters on her team. And this, uh, this, this serves a bunch of purposes, right? One, We find that it creates some social cohesion amongst the players, especially um, if they don't know each other ahead of time, which is which is often the case. Right. Um, It also gets them in a much more realistic frame of mind as we are kind of pushing them through this scenario under different types of pressure. Um, And it really helps the teams uh, take ownership of the consequences of what they're doing, the actions that they're taking in the game. Probably one of the most extreme examples of this. So because of the kind of the exceptional creative thinking that comes out of the entertainment industry, we have in the past used uh, used folks from that world as, uh, you know, as the red team. And they they are truly the ultimate red team. So there was one game uh, that we did and you know, many years ago where they were developing backstories between their characters that went back years, like characters <laughs> on the, in this game, on this team, they had gone through life events and milestones, you know, that, you know, obviously never were surfaced in the game, but it had a big impact on, um, you know, the, the intensity and the thinking that came out, that came out of the players. That I, I I don't know if there's a better opening to a podcast than this. I mean, how cool is this? Uh, you know, I think you're teaching us all something new. So it seems like this type of work you're describing requires a lot of creativity and out of the box thinking. 
Did you ever encounter times that it was hard to create that environment inside the government bureaucracy? That's a that's a really interesting question. So so there's the business side of games, and then there's the creative side, right? So the business side, sure, you know, we all we all understand and deal with resource constraints. So to that end, the play environment is, you know, it'll reflect that reality, right? As for the any difficulty enabling a creative environment in a government bureaucracy, you know, in the context of games, no, I've never, I've never really had uh, a challenge with that. There is no shortage of enthusiasm and uh, imagination from our workforce and from the private sector uh, and academic partners we work with. Um, and I will say that this has on more than one occasion kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, and I will, I, will share, I will share with you one particularly fun story. So uh, this was many years ago. We, we, had, we had rented these, uh, these two touch tables. And if you don't know what a touch table is, imagine just a table and the top of it is like a giant iPad, right? And you have people collaborating around this and they can share information and they can visualize different types of data. And, and so we were kind of experimenting with inner team collaboration, right? So we had one table placed in the blue room and we had one table placed in the red room. So one thing to know about, about these games, more often than not, red tends to fare better than blue in these games, okay? And we, you know, we've thought about this a lot, you know, maybe it's cultural, maybe it's the different mental models, you know, that the background of the team members come in with, but this seems to be a trend, right? Not in this case, though. So blue ends up beating red, and they really beat red. So at the end of these games, they, we do something called a hot wash, and, you know, this is typical in, in, you know, in any games, and usually you have um, the team members kind of walk through the thinking and the logic behind their actions and, and why they did certain things, and this is super important for the methodology because the assessments that come out of these, the products, you know, for the intelligence community um, are, um, are crafted from having, you know, a full understanding of what happened, right? Mm-hmm. So in this hot wash, it just didn't really come out, right? We kind of were scratching our heads. There was, there was certainly robust discussion, but it wasn't clear, you know, what happened. Okay, so fast forward a few hours. You know, we've packed up all the equipment and, and everything and um, uh, for the game and most people have left. So I'm walking back to my car um, and I'm walking with um, the technician that had been kind of helping us with the admin through the game. He worked for the company that we had rented these touch tables from. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're walking, walking in the parking lot and he goes, that was so much fun. I would love, love to play in one of these games again. And I kind of went. Uh, pause. What, what are you talking about? What ended up happening was the, uh, the blue team had co-opted him as he was servicing <laughs> the room. Like, so going That's back and forth, amazing. Right? So they had been, so he'd been eavesdropping in the red room when he was going back and forth. I don't think this guy even knew what had happened. And I mean, that's kind of a cardinal rule. Players will always try to break a game. And that, that's not the only time something like that's happened. Um, but it ended up being a super, super important insight in the overall story because, you know, it's human behavior. But, um, but one thing to keep in mind, you know, and this, that example in particular underscores an, an, impressive, an incredibly important point. You know, if you have 80 players in a game, 
that's 80 points of view. That's 80 stories. And it's super important to give attention to each of those in support of the kind of the aggregate and the overall intelligent story that comes out of the game. Wow. That's, that was, that was a great story. Thanks for sharing that. So I want to backtrack just a bit. And I am wondering if you could share with us a bit about how you ended up in the gaming and simulations world and how you charted your own path as a creative in the government world. Sure. So I started off as a cyber terrorism and cyber threat analyst. And I ended up uh, getting into gaming and simulation because it was was a great technique for answering abstract what-if questions on those topics from our customers, right? So as a career intelligence officer, though, you know, kind of over the years, I really, really embraced gaming um, in in kind of every role I took on, almost as a calling, uh, because I I believe really, really strongly in, um, in shining a light on uncharted territory, and then translating that into actionable, useful options and and recommendations for our decision makers. Um, As far as charting my own path as a creative, so I thought a lot about this and looking back, I I always followed the work. I was not following a title or a position. I never never really had a set of career goals. I, I absolutely love, love the substance. Um, especially the emerging tech world. And now as a senior leader, I love, you know, just enabling other people to follow their work and to follow their other, you know, and follow their substance, essentially. Um, Along the way, I did have wonderful, wonderful mentors that I let really get to know me. So they knew my strengths, my interests, and they were able to advise me on where there would or wouldn't be a good fit, you know, where I needed to improve and develop, um, I was also super conscious um, of building a network, you know, that extended well beyond the IC and into the private sector, in particular the tech sector and, and you know, in the creative industries, um, because I, I, I realized early I wanted to continue to stay very, um, very close to and abreast of the type of, you know, the thinking and the mindset that was leading to innovation and disruption outside of the government. So. To for our early career and student listeners, could you share with us, you know, even going back a little further, you know, what what did you major in? What did you study in college that kind of led to this path or did it have no relation at all? I think there's a there's a theme. I mean, I was always very kind of, you know, true to my interest. So undergrad, I um, I majored in politics, poli sci. Um, and then I, uh, in graduate school, um, I did information systems um, and, but, you know, more from a social science perspective. So when I look back at it, you know, and one thing, one, you know, piece of advice I, you know, I give to students is do what you love, right? It will all make sense in the end. You know, there isn't a template for this stuff. The only template is, um, you know, following your heart and, and what you Um, you know, what's true to you. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. So one of the highlights of your career was helping to design the Directorate for Digital Innovation at CIA. What was it like to stand up a new agency directorate with a completely blank slate? Oh, so that was an incredible, incredible honor. Um, And without a doubt, a once in a career opportunity. 
um, just, you know, just to be a part of the team that designed the strategy and the implementation of the first new director in 50 years was a profound learning experience. And I can't stress that enough. Um, and it, it heavily informed my style of leadership. I was exposed to decision-making um, and a senior level process um, that was quite new to me. Um, and again, I, um, you know, I had mentors along the way and I asked about a gazillion questions and um, participated um, um, you know, in every way imaginable. Um, I think as part of that experience though, the, um, the role that I really, I really hold dear to my heart um, was leading the creation of a supporting organization within the directorate um, that was focused on the digital future and emerging technologies. So uh, just to pull the thread a little bit about, you, you mentioned uh, just a bit ago about, you know, you asked tons and tons of questions. Mm -hmm. I think some of our early career and student listeners um, to just uh, piggyback off of that or have you expand on that, that, you know, don't be afraid to be the person in the room to raise your hand and ask the question that you think maybe everybody knows. Tell tell our listeners why that's so important. No, it's a great question. So, so first of all, you know, it's really true that, you know, if you're thinking of the question in all likelihood, somebody else is thinking of the question, right? And, you know, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your peers and your colleagues in the room to be brave and put yourself out there and ask the question, um, you know, and kind of in the background, it also serves another purpose. Um, it helps people get to know you. It helps people mm -hmm. understand where your head is, um, what you're thinking, what your thought process is, where your strengths are. Um, and this is important, again, in building that repertoire where people know who you are and they're like, oh, that, you know, that might be a good fit over here or that might not be a good fit over there. Also, you know, if you, if you think through how brainstorming works and where innovation comes from, it doesn't come from any one person. It comes from people engaging with each other and building on each other's ideas, right? It's, and that's kind of what we try to do in games. It's the rapid exchange of ideas. It's people sharing and going, oh, that made me think of this or, and it's just a, a really kind of beautiful dynamic thing that falls out. But it starts with sharing what you're thinking, even if it's just a question. I have never heard anyone answer that question in that way. And I absolutely love it. Um, the fact that, you you know, one of the ways in which people can get to know you is by hearing at how you ask a question, how your mind works and what you're thinking. So I love that answer. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. So um, did you have other professional experiences as a woman in the intelligence community that were particularly impactful for you? Yes. So let's see that, that, uh, that, that brings back memories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it really, really does. Another era. So so really early on in my career, I, I remember being in just a series of meetings um, where I was I was struck by by how many more women, especially senior women, um, were represented in American intelligence generally as compared to our overseas counterparts. Right. Mm. I took a lot of joy in that, um, you know, and as a junior female officer, 
uh, it made me even prouder to serve uh, in the agency. Um, years on, you know, at this stage in my career, um, you know, the experience that I think is most personally impactful to me as a woman uh, is simply being a full-time working mom. I, I was super lucky. I've had some great role models for how and when to achieve uh, that work-life balance, um, you know, especially with young kids. Well, and now you serve as a role model for, mm-hmm. for others. So I, uh, that's great. Thank you. So I know you're really, really passionate about developing other creatives as a leader. I like that word, creatives. How do you maximize the creative capacity of teams that you lead? So a few different ways. Um, let me think. So one of the most direct is simply to help officers gain confidence in themselves on the topic that we need them to be creative about, right? So an example would be gaining a, um, a solid understanding about how digital technologies work, you know, like virtual or augmented reality. That'd be, that'd be one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other cases, it's not that direct. It's not about knowledge. Um, it's really, it's really more about building trust between individuals and across teams. And, uh, and as a leader, you know, whether you're senior or not, it means visibly modeling behavior that shows it is a good thing to put yourself out there and to suggest what to, to many may sound like a crazy idea, right? Um, generally, though, uh, it's really about getting to know your people, Um, and aligning them with their own curiosity and passions uh, in the service of the agency. Stepping back, right? There's Mm -hmm. another, there's kind of another way of getting at this. I think what, you know, what personally drives me, you know, what I, what I try to do when it comes to developing other creatives, I really, I really aspire uh, to help, to help people be ambitious about their own potential, you know, especially their creative potential, because, uh, it is a matter that is exceedingly important to national security. Well, I I would kind of push back and say uh, that I don't know if it's often that, you know, folks in the intelligence com- uh, community are encouraged to be creative uh, or I think they would they would argue that maybe they're not. And so it's refreshing to hear that there are leaders that encourage it. And there are places within the intelligence community that encourage being creative. Yeah, I, I think creative, um, I think it's kind of a loaded word, right? I think a lot of people hear that word and they think, oh, I'm, I'm not an artist, I can't paint, or I'm, I'm not creative at all. And I think Part of what we need to, um, you know, what I try to communicate anyway is that when I say creative, I mean kind of the full breadth of how you can contribute your unique talents Mm -hmm. and think through challenges and problems and solutions in the most innovative way that you can contribute. And part of that, um, part of that comes from, you know, being really comfortable putting yourself out there and recognizing that everybody Everybody has, um, you know, a capacity to just um, be more expansive about their thinking and have, um, you know, more of an open mind and the continuous learning that you hear more and more about of about. 
100%. So I am sure it's obvious to all of our listeners that you are an incredibly passionate person. Where does your passion come from? And how important has it been to spreading your ideas and creating change? You know, I think my passion really comes from just pursuing my interests and pursuing my curiosities. Um, you know, but most, most importantly, not judging them right? It took me a while to really embrace that about myself. Um, And so when I do that, you know, sooner or later, I end up on a path uh, to a topic or an issue that I get really, really jazzed about. Um, And then, you know, to have the opportunity to to work with such exceptionally talented people um, in and out of the IC and public sector and private sector, you know, on some of these topics is just, it's incredibly gratifying, right? Um, you know, as for, as for kind of spreading ideas, creating change, you know, I'm, I'm really conscious of trying to be authentic internally um, and outwardly. I think that's extremely important. And, you know, going back to modeling your values, that's, that's kind of where that comes into play. You know, ideally, you know, if you're doing that, then, you know, you know, ideas, ideas spreading and change, you know, whether it's mine or someone else's, you know, hopefully kind of organically follows from that. But on a, on a day-to-day basis, kind of, the, you know, that passion, it's, for me, it's about uh, being generous with your talents, with your contributions to other people's work and other people's vision, you know, regardless of whether you ever, ever get the luxury of knowing the role that you may have had in their success. And that's, you know, that's typical in my line of work, you know, given the need to know. Right. So as you know, we end each episode with the same question and keeping with uh, the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? This is such a fun question. Okay. All right. So I decided that I would want to be called Time Traveler. (gasps) Oh my gosh. I love it. All right. So here's, so here's, I'm glad. So here's my explanation. Um, I, I, you know, I really believe that, you know, my, my most precious resource is time, right. And where my attention is given, you know, relative to that. Right. So one thing to know about me is that much of my inner reality, you know, personal and professional is kind of spent jumping between past, present and future. Um, sometimes at an alarming rate to myself. Um, and I kind of, I, you know, I think I reflexively do this um, as a way to optimize or, you know, maybe just anticipate future conditions that will benefit or advantage the intelligence community. Um, and, you know, and that's what I do. And that's how I try to bring value to my people and the agency as a whole, um, including, um, you know, others in the community who design games, you know, just to bring this whole thing full circle, um, you know, and believe in the techniques value to the craft of intelligence as much as I do. Oh, wow. That is a great name. I have a feeling that I am going after this, this episode airs, I, I just have a sneaking feeling that I am going to get a lot of emails and calls <laughs> about how 
can they get in touch with you and how can I work for Rachel? I just have a feeling. Thank you. (laughs) So thank you, Rachel, so much for sharing your time with us today and sharing your stories. Um, We thank you for your, uh, your incredible service to our country and the IC. And I hope you had a little fun today. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Wise Wisteria and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.